You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 22nd of February 2023 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, what now after Vladimir Putin withdraws Russia from the last nuclear arms treaty with the US? Also ahead... All countries conduct military exercises with friends worldwide. So there should be no compulsion on any country that it should conduct them with any other partner. It's part of a natural course of relations. We'll ask why South Africa is conducting military drills with Russia and what consequences it could have for the country. Plus, if I will be alive after the war, if I will survive, I'm sure that my writing will be very different from what I have done before, because this time changed us crucially. In the third instalment of our Ukraine anniversary series, we look at the impact of the conflict on the country's artists. We'll go through the day's sharpest newspaper stories and we'll head to Madrid to find out more about the city's leading contemporary art fair. That's all to come on The Globalist, live from London. First, so a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. Mexico's former security minister and champion of his country's war on drugs has been convicted by a US jury of drug trafficking. A huge storm is moving across the west of the United States, threatening to bring record snowfall and cold. And the world's largest coffee chain has launched an olive oil-infused drink in Italy. Starbucks chief executive says olive oil's unexpected velvety buttery flavour enhances the coffee and lingers beautifully on the palate. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, how should the world react to Vladimir Putin's announcement yesterday that Russia is pulling out of a key new nuclear arms agreement. During his State of the Nation address, President Putin announced that his country will no longer be part of New START. It is, or rather was, the last nuclear arms control treaty between the two nations, established between Barack Obama and Dmitry Medvedev in 2010. Well, to tell us what we can expect from the next few days and months, Dr Lucy Burge joins me. She's a specialist in Russian politics. Uh, she's on the line. A very good morning to you, Lucy. Good morning. Um, just explain to us, what was New START set up to do? So the New START treaty was a landmark uh, arms control treaty, um, which was there essentially to reduce um, nuclear arms uh, testing and proliferation um, between the two largest nuclear powers. And it was signed in April 2010 and eventually came into force in um, February 2011. Now, the treaty limited the numbers of um, deployed strategic nuclear warheads um, quite significantly, down from nearly two-thirds from the original START treaty. Um, And uh, the treaty also crucially limited the number of deployed and non-deployed intercontinental ballistic missile launchers. Um, and submarine-launched ballistic missile launchers and heavy bombers equipped for uh, nuclear armaments to up to 800. Um, Now, the withdrawal from it is clearly a political decision, um, and it will no doubt cast a shadow on what was 
a significant diplomatic achievement between the two, what the world's two largest nuclear powers. Um, and, but of course, you know, it does signal a large blow to um, nuclear non-proliferation efforts. But critically, though, it's important to underline that Russia hasn't actually withdrawn from it. It's suspended its implementation. So that does mean that the decision could be easily reversed should there be um, a sort of appetite for it. But I think probably the most troubling aspect of um, the suspension um, in the short term is that you know, the existing insulation between the USA and Russia and, and, and as far as arms are concerned, have gone. And that means that there'll be no um, inspections or uh, bilateral consultative commission meetings and therefore no exchange of information. So if you will, a sort of uh, communication lapse. Which is always the most difficult and problematic area of this is because if you are not talking to the other side, then the risk of either misinterpretation or indeed deadly accident increases. Yes, precisely. Um I do think as well, you know, as I, as I said, this is clearly a, a political decision um, um, to, to suspend implementation of, of the treaty, of its protocols. But it's also clearly, you know, in the current context, it's a signal to the West um, that the regime is essentially prepared to sacrifice or, you know, forego one of the greatest bilateral achievements since the Soviet Union collapsed, you know, should the West continue to uh, fail to understand Russia's seriousness about prosecuting its war. So, yeah, I mean, while it removes a key safeguard for for the development and, pos and possessions um, of, of nuclear weapon between these two um, nuclear powers, and, you know, so on the face of it, it may make what we perceive to be as, um, you know, thinly veiled nuclear threats from Putin, you know, appear to be less hollow. Um, I do think quite often that, you know, the sort of nuclear war mantra can become a bit of a distraction from, from the here and now, um, essentially Russia's war in Ukraine, you know, where the Putin regime has decided not to use nuclear weapons, you know, for many sound and log logical reasons up till now. I think it's you know far more likely than deploying anything, you know, a tactical nu nuclear weapon. Um, we might see more uh, illegal weapons deployed, you know, such as cluster munitions, which has already been documented, or even sort of um, chemical weapons, as we saw in Syria. It's, but, it's interesting how you see there the, the, the this this nuclear narrative now seizing control of of uh, absolutely everything that is going on, and you're you're quite right because U.S. President Joe Biden is in now is now in Warsaw and is meeting leaders of of the eastern flank of NATO um, to to show solidarity to show that NATO is unmoved. But this is something that's absolutely going to dominate the the conversation, isn't it? Yes, certainly, and I, I do think one has to be um, of, of one shouldn't underestimate um, the danger presented by. Um, by Russia's suspension of the implementation of um, the New START Treaty. That said, I do think that the, um, that we need to remain kind of sober-headed about this because actually talks of a nuclear war kind of return the, con the conversation to a Cold War rhetoric. But actually Ukraine, um, specifically in the West, you know, we, we are... We are, we are connection issue there with Dr. Burge. Uh, we'll try and get her back as soon as we can. You're with Monocle 24. This is The Globalist. Join Monocle 24 every day and let the briefing guide and inspire you through uncertain times, always keeping you ahead of the curve. 
Hear razor-sharp insights and opinion from a lineup of brilliant minds every day. It's devolving to a point where we're at odds with each other instead of letting our political leaders do the dirty work, so to speak. Catch up with Monocle's bureau and correspondents around the world. Heavyweight coverage, no white noise, and always delivered with a smile. I think the grey areas lead to a lot of sort of awkward conversations, and there's nothing the English dislike more than awkward conversations. Every weekday at 1300 CET, midday in London and 7am in New York City. Keep your appointment with The Briefing, weekdays on Monocle 24. Well, I'm delighted to say we have Dr Lucy Burge back after some rather interesting technical problems. Glad to have you back, Lucy. Sorry about that. Not a problem. Absolutely not a problem. Uh, it happens. Um, let's just return briefly to the to the issue of, of how the rest of the world reacts to uh, Putin's speech yesterday and his suspension of, of New Start. I mean, the, the NATO eastern flank meets today. Joe Biden is there very much leading from the front. Um, what's your reaction to this? Yeah, um, well, I mean, uh, Joe Biden has certainly shown... Um, true leadership and sort of character um, in the last week, you know, by visiting, firstly visiting Kiev um, and now sort of making it a clear signal to the world, you know, that NATO is here to stay. I um, I don't know where, where we lost me at technically, but I wanted to just um, underscore um, the fact that, you know, um, seeing this as seeing Russia's withdrawal from the, from the New START Treaty as, you know, potentially presaging a, a nuclear conflict or a sort of nuclear confrontation between um, Russia and the West, you know, that I think that that's a slightly um, erroneous way of thinking about this, Um, that, you know, essentially the challenges now that the world is facing, well, Ukraine primarily, but the West by implication um, with this Russian regime, you know, it's not um, the same set of challenges that we were facing in the Cold War, where there were essentially two nuclear powers fighting it out for primacy. You know, we're dealing with an international system that is much more disparate and splintered um, with, you know, more actors and more competing interests to sort of, from bipolarity to multipolarity. So I, I do think um, the temptation to see this as beginning to resemble some kind of Cold War nuclear confrontation is slightly reductive. One thing that, you, what, that does remain to be asked, though, is that having um, suspended the involvement with New Start and having, over the last years, withdrawn connections and deals and treaties with the United States and, and, and other partners, what has Putin got to sever now with us? <laughs> uh, interesting question. Um, I mean, yes. Yeah. I think this this really highlights the significance um, uh, of Russia suspending its implementation of specifically New START because it was the last remaining arms control treaty. But essentially, um, you know, treaties can be renegotiated, um, especially, and, and they can be they can be reinvoked simply like this one. So, I. You know, I, I think Putin remains very much determined to finish um, what he started in Ukraine, um, clearly having scaled back his ambitions greatly by not going after Kiev and, and the north of Ukraine. Um, but clearly he he means business and, and is, you know, determined to show the West that he will stay in this war, you know, come he- hell or high water for as long as it takes. 
One thing that we've seen in the last uh, 24 hours is is a, a, a different kind of movement by Vladimir Putin in, in his perpetual um, quest to, to strengthen Russia and protect Russia by gaining more land. Um, there is a, a leaked document which suggests that Russia is intending to absorb Belarus by 2030. Um, and we also had um, him talking yesterday about um, revoking... Uh, a decree that underpinned Moldova's sovereignty in resolving the future of Transnistria, which is a, a separatist region which is which borders Ukraine and where Russia keeps troops. There is this sense that there is a, a land grab going on. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily call it a land grab at this stage. I mean, it's, it's insofar as Belarus is concerned, um, this leaked dossier that you mentioned from the summer of 2021 um, seems to be authentic. Um, but there's some key context here that shouldn't be overlooked. Um, you know, this is not the first time that we've heard of such plans, um, though obviously with, with varying d- accounts of acquiescence from the Belarusian dictator Lukashenko. Um, around the same time, um, there was a rumour of a possible unif- unification deal between the two. And this is particularly after the election um, the presidential election in Belarus in the summer of 2020, where which sparked a significant protest movement, um, and you know there were mass incarcerations, um, a very oppressive and heavy response by the Lukashenko regime, with about 37,000 people arrested. You know this very much boosted Belarus's dependence on Moscow, um, as before that Lukashenko had. Had, who then became ceased to be recognised by Western leaders as Belarus's president, you know, had before that attempted to position Belarus as a neutral state between the West and Russia as needed, essentially. Um, but needed very much after this, this crackdown in 2020, needed Putin's help. And clearly this landlocked country with a, you know, a population of 9 million is of great significance to Russia strategically because it's, a, it's almost a litmus test because the Kremlin is directly invested in whatever happens in Belarus politically. So um, in order to help Lukashenko repress um, the protest, you know, this is very important, lest it spark a similar movement inside Russia. So the merging with Belarus is certainly, for Putin, is is about, you know, Russia's survival and and specifically the survival of, of the regime. Dr. Lucy Bird, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle 24. You with The Globalist. A Russian warship docked in a South African port this weekend as part of a 10-day joint naval exercise between the two countries. The frigate Admiral Gorshkov had a Z and a V painted onto its smokestack, similar to the signs painted on the military tanks that rolled into Ukraine a year ago. I'm delighted to say I'm joined on the line from Johannesburg by Nwabiza Makunga, who's editor of the Sowetan. Very warm welcome to you, Nwabiza. Thank you, Emma, and good morning. So just explain to us a little bit about what these exercises involve. 
But essentially, uh, they are simply just military drills, um, really kind of, you know, it's a show of uh, showmanship between, you know, all the three countries. It's uh, South Africa, Russia and China. Um, they are on the coast of Richards Bay, uh, which is on the east of South Africa. Um, they're really about, uh, you know, showing, uh, you know, according to the South African army, they're about transferring of skills between, you know, the the, the three countries in particular. Uh, you know, if you speak to the generals, they'll tell you South Africa is to gain, um, you know, from that transfer of skills. And for them, it's really a, uh, you know, kind of a celebration of the partnerships between these three countries and a show of uh, of showmanship, I suppose, in terms of the army. And this is a difficult moment, though, because the, a, a show of solidarity and showmanship is a very difficult thing to do when Russia is currently invading Ukraine. Absolutely. Um, you know, and many of us journalists and some South Africans are actually asking this question. Um, but the answer from the South African government as well as the army is a confusing one. So they'll tell you, you know, these two things have absolutely nothing to do with, you know, with each other. So uh, the army, for example, will tell you, well, you know, we planned this, uh, you know, a couple of years ago. I think it was two years ago, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, uh, and you know, this is not about politics, whether local or global politics. Um, this is really what, you know, what we do. And we've done this with many countries before. We've done it with the US, um, you know, and some other Western counterparts. And so it has nothing to do with the other. And, and the same story, I think, from the South African government, which is that, yes, we remain neutral, uh, you know, in the in the war, uh, you know, in Ukraine. And of course, the language matters here. The South African government calls it the war in Ukraine rather than Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, and I think, you know, the, the answer we get uh, from from authorities is, is simply that, well, you know, we planned this a long time ago and this has nothing to do with the war itself. And are people satisfied with those answers? Uh, no. So I think you get two kinds of people. So there are people who are, you know, extremely concerned. Uh, and I might, you know, uh, hazard to say that they're probably in the minority. So it would be, you know, some people in the media as journalists, as well as people who support, um, you know, Ukraine. There is an organization in South Africa called uh, the Ukraine Association of South Africa. And they've been holding some protests, you know, against against these drills. But I think, you know, uh, the, the, the majority perhaps of South Africans uh, have really been quiet about it. Um, it's it's probably not uppermost in mind, uh, you know, for, for the many people who live in this country. Which is an interesting position, given the fact that so many other countries in the Western world are very, very against um, what is happening in Ukraine. How bothered is South Africa by the fact that it could find itself as an outlier in, in many other people's eyes? Um, I don't think, uh, you know, ordinary people, you know, who walk the streets of South Africa uh, are uh, as bothered. Of course, we must understand there is a history here. So there, there is, from a South African perspective, um, you know, there is a history of, you know, support from Russia. So dating back to apartheid times. Um, and so many people, uh, you know, who would say, well, you know, we're not really involved in the war. There are, however, a significant, uh, you know, number of people, including many of us in the media, who have called this out for what it is. And we're saying that, you know, essentially this, the, the, the South African um, uh, quote unquote neutrality um, in this war is problematic, in particular, if you look at, you know, our history of, of human rights and essentially what is happening in, in Ukraine. So, so yes, there people, there's not a groundswell, I'm afraid to say, of opposition, you know, in South Africa from ordinary people about this. There are, however, pockets, um, you know, of people who feel the South African government ought to do better considering its record, uh, you know, as far as apartheid is concerned. Indeed, and South Africa's image locally within the region as well, has that changed as a result of these drills? 
No, no. You must remember also Africa, uh, you know, uh, you know, as a continent has also kind of maintained this uh, almost neutrality, um, you know, because of really of, of the Russian uh, PR and propaganda, you know, in not just in South Africa, but essentially in the African continent. And so uh, there, there isn't, uh, you know, South Africa is not shunned, uh, you know, in, in its position. It's actually probably finding comfort, you know, in, in, in countries within, you know, within our region. Of course, it is awkward considering the fact that, you know, Western countries and others are you know, our big trade partners. So there's always those, uh, you know, uh, uh, murky waters that the South African government, ha- you know, has to uh, to navigate essentially as, as far as this is concerned. But uh, uh, but no, uh, South Africa is not uh, doesn't seem to be you know embarrassed in any way um, by by what is happening currently. Let's touch on trade that you just mentioned a moment ago. The the, the U.S. and the EU are parts of the world that are some of South Africa's biggest biggest trading partners. How much is South Africa ready to risk in order to maintain this neutrality, one wonders? I suppose, you know, for, for a while, I mean, it's been, what, a year now, um, and there hasn't really been um, any kind of, kind of negative impact. The African government is talking to anybody who, who will talk to us. Um, I mean, you know, uh, U.S. authorities do come to South Africa quite often, um, and, and South African government, government really maintains and says, no, we, you know, we are neutral. Of course, there is pressure mounting, um, in particular with this drill that is that is that is currently happening. There is pressure mounting on, on the South African government to say, but you, you say one thing you say that you are neutral but in effect by doing this exercise you are firmly siding with the aggressor here and South African government is absolutely pushing back and saying that is absolutely not what is happening what is essentially happening is you know something that was planned a long time ago and uh, we're carrying on as we've done so with you uh, you know or France or, or any other country. Nobisa Makunga from the Sowetan joining us on the line from Johannesburg. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. Still to come on today's programme, in the third part of our special series, marking one year since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we look at the role of culture in conflict. For over more than 200 years, Russia has been a shadow over Ukraine. One could even say that 40 or 50 percent of Russian culture is built on the bones of Ukraine. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. And you're back with The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. Now, extreme flooding and landslides have hit the north coast of the state of Sao Paulo this month, bringing devastating loss and destruction. The region is known to be a tourist destination for the wealthy and those celebrating carnival in Brazil. Well, Monocle's producer and senior correspondent, Fernanda Augusta Pacheco, spent many childhood summers there and tells us why the number of deaths could have been avoided. <laughs> The north coast of the state of Sao Paulo is a stunning place, a mix of rainforest, beautiful mountains, and some of the best beaches in Brazil. I remember my childhood there, where I used to be addicted to the roxinha ice cream from the region, my favorite flavors, grenadine and burned coconut. I remember being fascinated by the surfers of Maresias, spent romantic weekends in Barra do Saí, and used to play frescobol with my dad. So it was devastating seeing all those beautiful places completely destroyed 
by the worst storm in Brazilian history. According to Brazil's National Center for Disaster Monitoring Forecast, the rain that fell last Saturday and Sunday accumulated 682 millimeters in Bertioga and 626 millimeters in São Sebastião, beating the terrible floods in Petrópolis in Rio de Janeiro last year that took the lives of 241 people. So far, the storms in São Paulo have killed 40 people, and many are still missing. It is undeniable that it has been an unprecedented weather event, and it was overwhelmingly sad that this happened right in the middle of Brazil's party season. This Wednesday marks the end of carnival in the country. Carnival is a moment for celebration of life and culture, but the opposite happened. President Lula visited the affected areas on Monday, a contrast to Jair Bolsonaro, who infamously preferred to ride a jet ski on holidays instead of helping the floods in the state of Bahia in 2021. In the 70s, the region, besides having a local population of fishermen, used to attract hippies and the more adventurous. At the time, access to its pristine beaches was very difficult, but the place became popular and the region grew uncontrollably, with big luxury condominiums being built all over the coast. Because of that, it needed a strong workforce too, so many people moved from other cities to work in the growing construction and service industry. The problem is, as in many other places in Brazil, there was no clear urban plan. Many of those working at the big luxury houses have homes that were built in areas extremely vulnerable to the environment. Though this particular storm is unprecedented in its scale, it's not uncommon to have floods in the region, and some of those houses are at a permanent risk of landslide every time it rains. It seems a cruel price to pay for better economic opportunities. As the editorial of Brazilian newspaper Folha de São Paulo said in its most recent edition, only a strong housing policy will defend poor Brazilians from the devastating loss of life every summer. One thing for sure, the level of devastation was immense, and here I am hoping that it will be a game-changer for a region that is so loved by many, including me. For Monaco, I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And my thanks to Fernanda Augusto Pacheco for that. You with The Globalist. Now let's hear more about uh, the Munich Security Conference, which happened over the weekend. Monocle 24's foreign desk team was there and heard from many attendees talking about the most pressing topics in defence. Well, one of the conversations on many lips has been Ukraine's desperate appeals for F-16 fighter jets, something that Air Marshal Sir Christopher Harper, former Director General of International Military Staff at NATO, knows a thing or two about. Andrew Muller began by asking Sir Christopher what difference F-16s would make to Ukraine at this point in the conflict? Well, let's talk about the practicalities of the request to start with, because it is not a simple thing to do, to suddenly take on air power of that technological capability. It's a really tough ask. And you will be very aware that in the United Kingdom we have a very good training system for fast jet pilots, but even without the delays that attend the system that are currently in the United Kingdom at the moment, 
you got to back on three and a half years from cradle to getting somebody operational on a frontline squadron. And that really then equips a pilot to be able to operate a modern fast jet combat aircraft. It's only half the story. A combat aircraft's an unbelievably complicated piece of machinery. It's a system of systems before you even start looking outside the platform, before you even start looking at the command and control mechanisms that you need to facilitate combat air operations. Then there's a logistic chain, which is absolutely incredible. The interdependency on nations, on supply chains, on spare parts is really quite phenomenal. So this really is not a simple single platform insertion. You asked, though, the very specific question, what could it do? Well, if it were up and running, if Ukraine had an F-16 force now, and it was combat-ready and operational, it would make an immense difference because the United States, amongst others, used that platform for suppression of enemy air defence, taking out the systems which counter aircraft and counter drones. So that is something that you would need to generate air superiority over the territory of the Ukraine and to be able to guarantee it. That's a really important consideration too. But they don't. And so, therefore, we have to be able to find other ways of taking out the aggressors' air defence systems. So just to go back to the F-16s thing, though, and I have no idea about the relative interoperability between MiGs, which Ukraine's pilots can fly, versus F-16s, that background doesn't help in training them to fly an F-16? It's that different? Well, if you can fly an aeroplane, if you can fly a fighter aircraft, it takes you a step or two down the road of being able to operate a more modern, more technologically capable aircraft like the F-16. But MiGs and F-16s are really quite different. A MiG is, frankly, a second, third, at best generation aeroplane, whereas I think um, most people would describe the F-16 as bounding on um, fourth generation. And, and that logistic chain that you mentioned, is there, would it be impossible with all the resources made available for Ukraine to completely operate the F-16 entirely by itself? Is, is the supply chain and logistics chain necessarily international? It is necessarily international. It's an American aircraft. In fact, they all have American propulsion systems, American radar systems, American self-defense systems, and they are operated by a number of countries around the world. But even those that do all rely on logistic support from the United States. And most of the European nations that operate F-16s actually club together for elements of their maintenance and service support for that aircraft. So it would be a step, wouldn't it, to try and do that for the Ukrainians. And it would be an even bigger step to try and install a maintenance logistics hub inside Ukraine in a timely and efficient manner. That's not saying it's impossible to do it. It's just not possible to do it fast. And I think one of the things we've got to concentrate on in this whole issue of the Ukraine is winning this conflict with them as fast as we reasonably can. There's an awful lot of discussion at this Munich Security Conference about our being in for the long haul. 
And it's absolutely right that we shouldn't try and put an end date on this conflict, but it can't be allowed to drag on. There are thousands of people dying in this conflict. It is utterly ghastly. It's an illegal invasion of Ukraine, as we all know, which has shown some ghastly crimes against humanity during its conduct by the aggressor. That was Air Marshal Sir Christopher Harper speaking to Monocle's Andrew Muller at the Munich Security Conference last weekend. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the week for more insights from the event. In a moment, well, we'll be continuing our Ukraine series. This morning we'll be talking about culture and the role that culture now plays in conflict. But first, a quick summary of today's other news headlines. Mexico's former security minister and champion of his country's war on drugs has been convicted by a US jury of drug trafficking. Gennaro Garcia Luna was found guilty of taking millions of dollars from Mexico's biggest crime group, the Sinaloa drug cartel. He could face up to 10 years in prison. The chief of the Wagner mercenary group has accused senior government figures of depriving his fighters of munitions in the war in Ukraine. Yevgeny Prigozhin called it a treasonous attempt to destroy his private military company. A huge storm is moving across the west of the United States, threatening to bring record snowfall and cold. The National Weather Services say up to two feet of snow and winds of up to 60 miles an hour are expected until Thursday. And the world's largest coffee chain has launched an an olive oil-infused drink in Italy. Starbucks chief executive says olive oil's unexpected velvety buttery flavour enhances the coffee and lingers beautifully on the palate. Italy's coffee scene is famous for its independent cafes, leading to major companies struggling to do well. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Still to come on today's programme, where we'll be heading to Istanbul to have a look at today's newspapers and we'll be heading to Madrid to hear about the city's most prestigious contemporary art fair. But first, all this week, we're running a special series on Monocle 24, looking at Ukraine and how the conflict has disrupted lives, society and the country. It's ahead of the one-year anniversary this Friday. For many in Ukraine, continuing artistic endeavours have become impossible as normal life has been put on hold. Well, in part three of our series, Monocle's Sophie Coombs explores the role played by cultural pursuit in wartime, both within and outside Ukraine, with poet and essayist Andrei Lyubka, who's shunned writing to focus on volunteering for the war effort, and Peter Doroshenko, who's director of the Ukrainian Museum in New York. For over more than 200 years, Russia has been a shadow over Ukraine. And with that shadow, it also covered in a very big way the whole aspect of Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian art, literature, music, etc. One could even say that 40 or 50 percent of Russian culture is built on the bones of Ukraine. It's fascinating on how the 200 years of Tsarist, Soviet, and now Putinist kind of um, periods have really russified what has always been Ukrainian. And it's, for the rest of the world, it's just too easy to to accept that and to not think about what is Ukrainian, what's the difference between Ukraine and Russia. Let me just lump it into Russia. Well, that's changing. In times of conflict, life as you know it is put on hold. But what is the role of arts and culture during this time? Andrew Lubka is a Ukrainian writer, essayist and translator. 
His published works include three books of poetry, short stories, essays and three novels, many of which have been translated. But he's not currently writing. I can say that my uh, work actually not only changed, but since the big war started uh, one year ago, I didn't write some fiction or essays, uh, or I don't know, literature uh, in broader sense. Uh, now I am focused on helping Ukrainian army. I use my writer's renome, I use my writer's connection. So in, in some way, it is uh, the continuation of my cultural work, but I work with my audience, with my readers who have read my books before, who visited my talks and discussions and so on. And now they are my donors because they support my activity. Andrew uses his public profile to raise funds and to channel them into the war effort. He's visited the front line 18 times over the past year. As well as delivering jeeps to the army, he takes chocolate and coffee, the kind that he describes as previously found in Ukraine's hipster cafes. But will he return to writing? You know, it is a very hard question for us because, first of all, when I am thinking about the future, first of all, I am thinking about the way and possibility that I have to survive, first of all, as a physical, biological being, because it is the biggest threat. And if I will be alive after the war, if I will survive, I'm sure that my writing, my uh, my books will be very different from what I have done before, because this time changed us crucially. Probably I will write something about this experience, about people I have met during this year, about living under the war uh, circumstances. But also it is highly possible that I will write something which is completely not about the war, because this experience is very hard and psychologically it is very black. And probably after the war, for me, it, it would be better to, to write something about in some new, completely new genre, maybe some kind of fantasy about or some kind of utopia and to write about something good and bright. So I'm not sure what I will be writing. I want to continue my writings after the war. Uh, I miss this feeling when I'm typing on my computer. But first of all, and my main goal now is to survive in a very biological, physical sense. While those within Ukraine are having their artistic endeavours sidelined as they focus on the war effort, organisations outside of the country play an important role picking up the mantle. One such institution is the Ukrainian Museum in New York, the largest arts organisation outside of Ukraine dedicated to the country's arts and culture. Founded in 1976, it began as an artist's collective, which started to accumulate art from the diaspora and to create an archive on Ukrainian immigration to the US. Now, the purpose-built museum houses temporary and permanent collections, and it's headed by Peter Doroshenko. He became director in September, months into the conflict. There has been obviously a lot of focus on all arts organizations outside of Ukraine, uh, and not just Ukrainian-based, on the war. And so it's a balancing act because an organization such as the Ukrainian Museum doesn't want to become a war museum, but yet at the same time, we do have to address it. So it's, I think, for anybody working at a museum, kind of a, a tightrope, but it's important for us to, for our visitors to know what is actually happening with art and culture in Ukraine during this war period, but yet also not to forget the success stories and, and the, the robust kind of uh, history 
of Ukraine and how it pertains to art and culture. The museum showcases Ukrainian culture in New York, but it also helps organizations safeguard arts and culture in Ukraine. One of their key missions is to be at the forefront of decolonizing Ukrainian culture. You can already see this taking place as institutions like the Metropolitan Museum in New York relabel work as Ukrainian rather than Russian. First of all, Ukrainian art and culture is, you know, centuries old. Most recently, in the last 200, 300 years, the traditional arts and crafts have kind of come to the forefront. And for the last 100 years, they've always been there. This has always been downplayed by the Russians on, you know, little villages and little, you know, settlements making their cute little artwork. But that cute little artwork is actually uh, something that has influenced all the great Ukrainian Eastern European artists, such as Kazimir Malevich, Vladimir Tatlin, the list goes on and on. That was Peter Doroshenko, director of the Ukrainian Museum in New York, and Andrei Lyubka there, speaking to Monocle's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. You were The Globalist on Monocle 24. It's uh, 15.41 in Hong Kong. It's uh, 9.41 in Istanbul, 7.41 here in London. And let's head to Istanbul now to have a look at today's newspapers. Uh, Joining me on the line is the journalist Ruth Michelson. Good morning, Ruth. Good morning, Emma. How's Istanbul looking this morning? Uh, Well, Istanbul is sunny, but the news from Turkey, unfortunately, continues to be pretty grim. Uh, This is a place that is recovering, particularly in the south, recovering from two more earthquakes to hit uh, the southernmost Hatay province on Monday evening. Um, So looking at some of the coverage of this, this is an earthquake that happened about eight o'clock in the evening, um, really focused on one of the areas that was hardest hit by the twin earthquakes that happened two weeks prior. Um, And there's coverage, for example, in Al Jazeera also mentioning, you know, the injuries and the what they call fear and panic, unfortunately, Uh, in northwest Syria on Monday evening when people were hurt, um, according to the White Helmets, because of stampedes, panicking and even jumping off buildings. How is I mean, how is this all still being reported? Because there is this dreadful acceptance that the news cycle moves on internationally. People are looking at Ukraine now because we have the anniversary on Friday. But if you are in Turkey and Syria, this problem is enormous. It is catastrophic and it is long term. I mean, that's a very good question. It's something where in terms of reporting at the moment, the point in the news cycle we seem to be here is that it's a discussion of what this devastation means, especially in light of um, these two latest earthquakes. Um, Some pretty sort of dry by the books reporting from the state news agency mentioning uh, that the disaster management authority Afad has seen over 7,000 aftershocks or recorded over 7,000 aftershocks since the initial two quakes. But I think what you're pointing to is this idea of, you know, what does it mean to have long-term reporting on the reconstruction? And at the moment, it seems like we're in a point where looking at coverage, for example, in the Washington Post about people's anger in Antakya and Hatay about 
people feeling that they had to fend for themselves after these these earthquakes um that it's really looking at how people are, are recovering from these and how people are feeling as they try and stay in their devastated homes rather than any kind of long-term effort at reconstruction. Uh, let's move on to another story that you wanted to draw our attention to, which is the US Supreme Court debating um, the internet and its very function. Yes, so this is a discussion that could change the future of the internet. This is about Section 230, um, th that is a law that basically uh, says that major internet platforms, in this case Google, um, it debates whether they should be liable for content that is uploaded onto their platforms. And this specifically is getting at the algorithm. So uh, this is a lawsuit brought by uh, the victims of vi uh, violence from the group ISIS saying that Google should be liable for algorithms that promote terrorist content, in their words. Um, interesting quote from the New York Times from Justice Eleanor Kagan of the US Supreme Court uh, saying, you know, these are not like the nine greatest experts on the internet, but they are being forced to debate this. Um, so essentially what we're seeing in the coverage is uh, some pretty in-depth discussion about how lawyers for these people have said that YouTube should not be liable for the algorithm um, and that the breadth of this lawsuit is way too large and could basically restructure the internet in a major way. It could restructure it, but also at the same time, everything I think could get lost mainly and perhaps in the reporting because the scope of this, ca this case is so wide. It is incredibly difficult to actually succinctly transmit what's going on uh, via the medium of news. Absolutely. I mean, I can tell you I had some trouble understanding it myself when I first started looking. The New York Times has this very, very detailed blow by blow back and forth between the different judges um, and the lawyers, including multiple quotes from the justices of the US Supreme Court, where it is their job to rule on this, saying uh, in one case, uh, on the other hand, we're a court. We really don't know about these things. Um, and that's, you know, that's in some of the most detailed coverage that there is. So succinctly understanding this quite important thing seems to be quite difficult. We'll be hearing from the uh, tech expert Josh Coles in just a few minutes, who I think will actually do his best to try and unpick it for all of us. Um, let's move on to a story about Israel's far right coalition. Um, the, the, the controversial plans to overhaul the judiciary, which have caused such problems in terms of um, what people believe is going to be a removal of some fundamental principles. Absolutely. And we're seeing reporting in Haaretz, which is a left wing Israeli newspaper, um, also some coverage in The New York Times, mentioning that these are pro uh, proposed changes that have met enormous and sustained and ongoing protests. Um, so this is a proposed change to basically change how the Supreme Court selects judges, uh, the power of the court, and it would also strip the Supreme Court to strike down basic laws passed by the parliament. Um, this is a proposed change where opponents of the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu have said, you know, history will judge you for harming democracy is one of the... Well, that was a paraphrasing one of the quotes um, from the opposition, Yair Lapid. Um, and another lawmaker said, you know, this is chaos. 
this potentially portends some kind of dictatorship. Um, Netanyahu has, of course, pushed back on this idea and said that this is democratic. It's also the inclusion in uh, in the New York Times, rather interestingly, that the Attorney General um, has actually barred the Israeli Prime Minister from being involved in this new legislation, but Benjamin Netanyahu still seems to be at the forefront. Ruth Michelson, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle 24. You're with The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Well, I promise you we would talk tech with Josh Coles and here he is. Josh, a very warm welcome back to Monocle 24. Good morning, Emma. Good to be here. Good to have you. Um, a moment ago, we were talking to our newspaper reviewer, uh, Ruth Michelson in Istanbul, who was uh, trying to do her best to, to sort of comprehensively explain this incredibly complicated story coming out of the US Supreme Court, which could completely rewrite the internet. Could you possibly explain to us the significance for it and, and, and trying to help us clarify why this actually does have such a huge uh, consequence for us? Sure. Well, the internet is founded on uh, the bedrock principle that the publishers of content online, which we now think of as Facebook, Twitter, and other social media platforms, are not generally legally liable for the content that they publish. Really, the liability uh, is uh, creates, a, creates a, a safeguard around them, which means that they can't really be sued uh, when things tend to go wrong on the internet, which, as we've seen, uh, they often do. That principle is now under threat because for the first time, as you say, the Supreme Court is in essence, uh, looking at the scope and the limits of this Communications Decency Act, which was passed way back in 1996, but which still holds sway in this area of what platforms are and aren't liable for. Uh, And so this is the issue that's uh, in front of the court. And what they're really looking at is whether this law is still up to date enough for uh, the 21st century and for this decade, particularly with respect to the use of recommendation algorithms, which platforms now use to inevitably organise the huge masses of content uh, and decide what we most want to see. And that's been what's at most issue uh, in this case. And what is likely to be the outcome here? Is that too complicated? Too simple a question for a very complicated answer? Well, but based on the uh, comments by the Supreme Court yesterday, it seems like they're wary about taking a firm stance on this either way. Uh, they, in a rather reflect, uh, self-reflective moment, uh, they mentioned that they're maybe not the nine biggest experts on the internet, uh, these Supreme Court justices. So they may be looking for a middle ground on what is, as you say, a, a very complicated question, because the extremes are pretty uh, are pretty extreme. Uh, if you were to interpret it complete, completely broadly, you'd say that anything is fair game on the internet and that there's no obligation to uh, really do much to present, prevent the spread of all but the most egregious content. On the other hand, uh, as it's been uh, stated uh, Facebook claimed that this would create a, basically a, a level playing field uh, of diverse perspectives, which could become a platform for orthodox uh, perspectives only. So that could really kind of create a vanilla internet, if you like, 
uh, where only the uh, most acceptable viewpoints are uh, allowed. And of course, who decides what's acceptable is another really complicated question as well. Indeed. And it gets even more complicated when we we now have Instagram and Facebook uh, now saying that they are going to have verified um, users, um, a little bit like Twitter's um, blue tick verification, but you'll have to pay for it. Yes, perhaps a bit surprising that uh, they are taking a, a leaf out of uh, Elon Musk's playbook uh, since he's taken over Twitter. Um, but I think this reflects the fact that another kind of principle of, of Silicon Valley that's held sway for so many years, which is that users shouldn't pay for their products, is also under threat. Now, Meta has been battered, as have many big tech firms, um, by the uh, kind of macroeconomic conditions and also specifically in Meta's case, by new rules by Apple, which have really cut its revenue uh, by up to 8% last year around how much they can track their users around iPhone devices. That is forcing them to consider other revenue streams, including this sort of verified uh, system, um, which may create another stream of income for them, but doesn't seem likely to replace the lost revenue from their, for a while, incredibly lucrative ads business. Josh Coles, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle24. You with The Globalist. Finally, let us head to Madrid to hear more about Arco Madrid, Spain's international contemporary art fair. There are 214 leading galleries from 37 countries across the globe in the Spanish capital, and one of the focuses this year is on the Mediterranean. Well, I'm delighted to say that on the line from Madrid is Maribel Lopez, who's director of Arco Madrid. A very good morning to you, Maribel. Very good morning, also. So just explain to us, for, for those of us who may not have been to Arco Madrid, what is it? Well, Arco Madrid is a um, contemporary affair, as you, as you said. It's been running for 42 years. This year we celebrate the 42nd edition. And it's a fair that puts together the contemporary art scene of Spain in, with an international art scene, uh, from basically from Europe, also Latin America, with a strong focus on Latin America, and as you said, this year on the Mediterranean also. So tell us a little bit about how it's evolved over the last four decades. Well, imagine the, the first started in 82, when the democracy was just giving, making the first steps. So it was an, a moment and an institution that really brought openness and new information and new contents to the, to the country. It was for a few years the only contemporary institution in Spain. So that changed, of course, over the years. And right now, it's an institution, it's of course a market, it's an offer, but also has a cultural and social a presence for the for the um, Spanish uh, audience and for the Spanish society, and also we work very hard to make it a very competitive and, and effective international author. So the evolution was from everything to an author, let's say. It's brilliant. Tell us a little bit about more of this this cultural cultural and social presence. I mean, what what does Arco Madrid do for the capital when it's in town? Well, this, it, it brings lots of people together. Arco is a fair that has also understood itself as a meeting point. So we invite this year basically 400 collectors from all over and 200 professionals to be part of this fair. So all these people meet by invitation of the galleries, by invitation of Arco through them. And, and then what we, it's created a meeting point for exchange of ideas uh, in the contemporary art world, but then all, all, all these meetings, all these connections expand in town. All the institutions, but not only the institutions, because Madrid in itself is a, is a very important focus of attraction 
for for people from all over. So meeting in town, going for dinner after the museum, and then going to the bar is also part of what this city brings and and alcohol and this somehow somehow makes happen. No, frankly, that sounds absolutely irresistible. Um, so let's <laughs> say I've just touched down in Madrid, and before I go for these amazing dinners and and drinks, what am I going to be able to see when I come this year? Well, this year I think what we will see is just a 211 gallery from all over. 66 percent of them are international which means also a very strong presence of the Spanish art scene that is maybe not so well known. This is also part of our challenge to make this, this scene being very well known. And what you will see is the galleries, I think, curating very interesting exhibitions in their booths. Now I think the, the security, the way the galleries present themselves this year, I think is beautiful and it's very much connected with the programs and the way they work in their spaces and that really makes us very proud. And the, the, the focus of some of the of, of the fair is on the Mediterranean. What, what, does, that, what does that involve? Yes, we, every year ARCO has several curated sections and every year one that is different to any other year. This year we decided to focus on the Mediterranean. Traditionally ARCO has had countries as invited as guests. So this year we decided to open the idea of a country to the idea of a territory, seeing geography, seeing from Spain, to the south, the uh, south we belong to, and and to also understand the, the name of the section. I think is very uh, make, clarifies a lot. It's called the Mediterranean around sea. So it's thinking from the from the middle of the sea, looking around and trying to connect the art scenes and the, through the artists from all the countries around the Mediterranean, connect them through art, no, through, through visual art, but also through music and to, through cinema. So all those things that connect us as cultures and, and creativeness and art is something that puts people together and not separate them. So this is the place we are building, even in the architecture that is done by the brilliant team of Andres Jaque. Even the architecture is very, very special. For an art fair, it's an exhibition in itself that will create new connection. So we will see artists, of course, from Spain, France, Italy, Greece, Turkey, also Egypt, Algeria, Morocco. So we are really trying to depict the Mediterranean context. Maribel Lopez, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Madrid. Anarco Madrid runs until the end of this weekend. And that's all we have time for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Marcus Hippie, Christy O'Grady and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our research was Andre Nicolai Parminturin and our studio manager was Nora Hall with editing assistance from Adam Heaton. After the headlines, more music is on the way. The briefing is live at midday here in London and The Globalist returns at the same time tomorrow. I hope you can join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson. Goodbye. Thank you very much indeed for listening. <laughs>